Hello, this is Father David Nix. This is a VLX interlude, Video Lexi Divina, and today we're going to talk about this question, is the Bible historical? You know, I'm surprised how many Catholics know that there are five senses of interpreting the Bible, but what they fail to realize is one of those senses is the baseline that must be taken as the status quo for every single sentence of the Bible. So it's great that there's a lot of people out there know that there's many different senses of interpreting the Bible, but again, what most modern Catholics don't get, and this is very important for the VLX series, anyone following that, and really for anybody who's not, who wonders if Catholics take the Bible literally, if the Magisterium of the Catholic Church teaches that the Bible is historical. As always, I'm not going to give you my opinion. I'm going to give you the classic Magisterium, the perennial teachings of the Catholic Church. Let's start with what a lot of people seem to know the five senses of interpreting scripture. We're going to look at the new catechism released by Pope John Paul II. And it says in paragraph number 116 to 117, the five ways of reading the Bible. And it says the first is the literal sense. And the catechism says, quote, the literal sense is the meaning conveyed by the words of scripture and discovered by exegesis following the rules of sound interpretation. All other senses of sacred scripture are based on the literal. So there you have a clue. That's really great that we do have the sense that this is now the baseline. Uh, one of the things that's a little wonky in there, though, is this isn't discovered by exegesis. The church has always taught this comes from the Orthodox Holy Fathers, the friends of the friends of the apostles. The water is always coolest and clearest at the source. Because exegesis, the problem is, we're going to see this a little bit later, the literary critical method of reading the Bible is you, the reader, gets to decide what is actually historical and literal. And most people see that as a one-to-one -one exchange with exegesis. That's a huge problem. So no, it's not the exegetes that decide what part of the Bible is literal and historical. Um, we're going to see in a minute, it's actually every sentence of the Bible. Again, not my words that might sound extreme and fundamentalist, but we're going to see what even the popes of the past 150 years said. Okay, the second is the spiritual sense. And the Catechism reads, this is again the New Catechism. Thanks to the unity of God's plan, not only the text of Scripture, but also the realities and events about which it speaks can be signs. The third is the allegorical sense. Catechism says, We can acquire a more profound understanding of events by recognizing their significance in Christ. Thus, the crossing of the Red Sea is a sign or type of Christ's victory and also of Christian baptism. Okay, good. I agree with all that. It's good. Fourth is the moral sense. The catechism, the new catechism says, the events reported in scripture ought to lead us to act justly. As St. Paul says, they were written for our instruction. And the fifth is the anagogical sense. The catechism points out this comes from the Greek anagoge, means to lead. We can view realities and events in terms of their eternal significance, leading us toward our true homeland, Thus, the church on earth is a sign of the heavenly Jerusalem, end quote. So what it's saying is the anagogical leads to the eschaton, study of eschatology, the final things, and that's also very good. But remember, the only infallible catechism in the Catholic Church is the Roman Catechism of Trent that came under Pope Pius V in the 16th century. That was said by a later pope. This, again, is not my teaching. Um, a pope slightly after the 16th century. I mentioned him in the first RCT that we do. That's another series I'm doing on the Roman Catechism of Trent. The only infallible one is that. 
And that's where it's not a problem for me to say, okay, there's a little bit of a problem in what came before the new catechism. You know, we just did 116 and 117. How about the paragraph, Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 115? This is it, quote, According to an ancient tradition, one can distinguish between two senses of Scripture, the literal and the spiritual, the latter being divided into the allegorical, moral, and anagogical senses. The profound concordance of the four senses guarantees all its richness to the living reading of Scripture in the Church. Okay, it's not too bad, but what's misleading there is ancient tradition has never held that literal exists in this either-or status with the other readings of the Bible, uh, like the allegorical or the moral or the anagogical. Um, in other words, here's the truth. All the church fathers always held that every sentence of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, was always literal and historical unless very specifically indicated by the assertion of the sacred author, really I should say by the Holy Spirit through the author, that otherwise can be interpreted. For, for instance, Song of Songs or Canticle of Canticles. So I guess what I'm trying to say today is if you want to read the Bible as a Catholic, you have to read every line as literal. And then if you want to, you can tag on, say, the moral. And then the next sentence, how do you take it? You are take, to take it as literal and historical. Oh, and then if you want, you might be able to read that in an anagogical way. Um, let's say you're just picking a random chapter in the Old Testament. You read that chapter as literal and historical. And I realize this is very contrary to everything I heard in Catholic grade school, Catholic high school, um, studying, I remember studying uh, scripture under a Harvard professor at Boston College. Um, he was a Unitarian, by the way. That's who a Jesuit has hired there. This is what Catholics are learning. But if you see what the church taught from 3380 to 1950, it's a totally different look at the Bible. Um, so you have to understand, if you open your Bible to any random chapter in the Old and New Testament, I'm going to prove this in a minute, not quote from quotes from me, but from popes, even the past 150 years, every chapter has to be taken as literal and historical. And then if you want, you can read, say, typology between Old and New Testament in that. Typology is looking at connections between the Old, Old Testament and New Testament, which is great. It's awesome. I love typology, but it's never to replace the literal and the historical reading of the Bible. And I know there's people who are going to say this is fundamental Catholicism, or this is what the teaching of a fundamentalist Catholic would say, but then they're going to have to say every pope and church father and every saint before 1950 was a fundamentalist Catholic. So if I'm in that category, guilty as charged. Because here's the thing, you can never, you as a reader, you never get to decide what you don't think is historical. So let's look at two of the modern ways of reading the Bible. I'll make this quick because this is just two definitions. We'll get to why the first is okay sometimes and the second is totally bogus. So many of you are familiar with that term historical critical method of reading the Bible. Historical critical method. That is comparing biblical history to extra biblical history. Let me say that again. The historical critical method is when you compare biblical history to extra biblical history. Now, there's a lot of traditional Catholics against this, and usually they're correct that it's done poorly. But we also have to assert at the same time that we're never afraid of real history. So, for example, look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls constantly validate what 
people like traditional Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, at least the Orthodox section of the Eastern Orthodox and Protestant Evangelicals who hold the inerrancy of the Bible, at least what they have of the Bible, because they're missing seven books, things like the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls really does vindicate traditional Catholic teaching on Scripture. It really vindicates, and I'm going to give you some quotes even from modern but pre-Vatican II popes, asserting that every sentence of the Bible is inspired by God. And this is where we don't have to be afraid of things like the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, the second new method of reading the Bible is called literary critical method. And literary criticism is when the reader decides, really based on any extra, extra biblical source he wants, including his own feelings, by the way, what he thinks is true in the Bible and what was added to the Bible. This is obviously extremely arbitrary if you as a reader just get to say, well, this sentence came from Jesus, but this sentence came from the Q document, and this sentence came from the early Christian community, and this was added in the 16th century. The funny thing is they almost have no evidence when they just slice and dice the Bible. They're just basically going on their, um, their agenda, usually from their own moral lives, what they want to believe and not believe in the Bible. So, unfortunately, most Catholic seminaries today are teaching not only the historical critical method, which, as I said, can sometimes be done well, they're even teaching the literary critical method, which absolutely doubts the historicity of the Bible. So, how much, how far back do we go? I know there's even pro-life Catholics out there who were taught in grade school and high school that Genesis 1 through 9 were considered, quote-unquote, prehistory. Um, nope, that's not what the Catholic Church teaches. Adam and Eve are historical people. Even encyclicals as late as Humani Generis by Pope Pius XII explain this in 1950. This is number 37, paragraph number 37 from Humani Generis, Pope Pius XII, in 1950. It certainly wouldn't be worth less if I was quoting you something from 1550 or the year 250, but I'm quoting you from 1950. And it says this, When, however... There is a question of another conjectural opinion, namely polygenism. The children of the church by no means enjoy such liberty. Okay, let me pause real quick. This is this idea that there were numerous um, family lines or ape lines or whatever else that we can trace all of the genetic human lines alive today back to. No, we believe every human comes from Adam and Eve. Continue on with this quote so you know this isn't just me as a fundamentalist Catholic. This is the Catholic Church's infallible encyclical spoken through Pius XII. Again, number 37 in Humani Generis. For the faithful cannot embrace that opinion which maintains that either after Adam there existed on this earth true men who did not take their origin through natural generation from him as from the first parent of all, or that Adam represents a certain number of first parents. Now it is in no way apparent how such an opinion can be reconciled with which the sources of revealed truth and the documents of the teaching authority of the church propose with regard to original sin, which proceeds from a sin actually committed by an individual Adam and which through generation is passed on to all and is everyone and is in everyone as his own. So right there we have the understanding that actually gives us a great insight that the same people promoting evolution, the same people that teach that Genesis 1 through 9 is not history but prehistory, are the same people that essentially teach there's no original sin, and that kind of explains why they have rose-colored glasses about everything going on in the church and state today, 
because they actually don't believe in original sin. See how this is tied to doubting Adam's historicity as well as promoting evolution? All of this is one big garbage package deal of modernism. Um, so this idea, you know, you'll even meet people out there that um, seem relatively decent, priests and bishops, who they actually think they're really orthodox because they teach the, the miracles of the New Testament are real, like the resurrection. Great, that's good they do that, but then they really believe that the miracles of the Old Testament are legendary or myths. You can't hold that as a Catholic. Such a notion does not line up with the infallible and articulated faith and morals of the Catholic Church that teaches that every sentence in the Bible is to be taken literally and historically, unless otherwise noted, like Song of Songs, and then and only then can we add on other senses like the analogical or the anagogical. Pope Benedict XV wrote in 1920 an encyclical, again considered infallible, called Spiritus Paracletus, which says, and listen, I think this might be the most fascinating quote from the whole podcast today. Listen closely. Quote, St. Jerome then goes on to say that all interpretation rests on the literal sense and that we are not to think that there is no literal sense merely because a thing is said metaphorically. For the history itself is often presented in metaphorical dress and described figuratively. Okay, so what he's not saying is that um, the literal is dressed up in the metaphorical in such a uh, ambiguous and amorphous way we can't know the history. What he means is that there's numerous layers under the literal. So we take the literal as baseline and then we can build on top of that as long as we're thinking in line with the Orthodox fathers of the church, different, say, typologies between Old and New Testament. So we can go really deep into metaphorical interpretations of the Bible if we want, but that can never be at the expense of replacing that all the events of Old and New Testament are literal and historical. I know this might be a showstopper for, for some of you, but this isn't me teaching this. This is what all the popes and all the fathers taught. Let me give you a couple examples. So, for example, we can say that Joshua and Caleb entering the Holy Land, you know, when they crossed the Jordan and it miraculously parted, much like what happened before that in the Red Sea, Joshua and Caleb entering the Holy Land with this parting of the Red Sea, um, can we say that's a, an allegory of baptism? And baptism leads us to the Holy Land of Heaven. Yeah, that's totally great. That is both typological and anagogical, and that's a great interpretation. But that does not mean the Jordan did not part for Joshua and Caleb. That was a lot of negatives, so I'll just say what the Catholic Church teaches. The Jordan literally parted for Joshua and Caleb. So every church father and saint believed that the Red Sea and, Jordan, and the Jordan literally parted miraculously. Okay, what about people who say, this is a little bit easier. I think people have a harder time with the, with the Old Testament. Probably most people are going to recognize the error in this one. How about the people that say, Jesus rose in the hearts of the apostles? Well, okay, it's not a totally false statement, but usually the people who say things like Jesus rose in the hearts of the apostles, usually what they mean is that Jesus did not bodily resurrect physically. Okay, of course, that's false. We know that the Catholic faith and the Bible teach that Jesus literally and physically rose from the dead. Why do we believe the apostles? Well, because there was no motive for a lie. Eleven of the twelve of them were killed for this, and John was placed in boiling oil and didn't die, but um, was certainly ready to. So usually when there's a motive for a lie, 
it is for money or popularity, and all the apostles ended up being tortured and or killed. So I hate categorizations, but things are so wonky right now that I kind of have to use them so I don't have to like give, you know, 30-minute preambles to explain the exceptions to this. But most of you know my story. I went from liberal Catholic in high school to uh, through college becoming kind of kind of an EWTN Catholic, and then maybe um, several years after I was ordained a Catholic priest, became a traditionalist. So I've seen the whole gambit, but one of the main things that woke me up uh, was this quote. I heard this 25 years ago, and this was, this was a real um, splash of cold water to my face in understanding what the Catholic Church actually taught about the Bible. It comes from Pope, Pope Leo XIII in Providentissimus Deus, and he writes, quote, for all the books which the Church receives as sacred and canonical are written wholly and entirely with all their parts at the dictation of the Holy Spirit, end quote. It's Providentissimus Deus 20. So all my time in grade school and Jesuit high school and Jesuit university, we always said things like, well, it's not like the Holy Spirit dictated the Bible. Um, it's right there. It, we just heard it in an infallible document. Now, that is dictated through human agents, of course. We're not saying this was a computer printout that just, you know, fell from the sky. Of course, God used human agents. But again, all the books which the church receives as sacred and canonical are written wholly and entirely with all their parts at the dictation of the Holy Spirit. Prognotismus Deus number 20. So you know what, honestly, at this point now in my life, I'm fine if people call me a fundamentalist Catholic, because what that means is I simply line up with what every desert father believed about the Bible. I simply line up with what every pope up to 1950 taught on the inerrancy of Scripture. What came after that? I know. It's not my responsibility. I'm just telling you I line up with, with what most of the Catholic Church has taught. And so when a Catholic calls another Catholic a fundamentalist Catholic, all I hear is that that person, being called names, puts divine revelation ahead of another man's agenda-based deconstruction of the Bible. And that agenda usually has something to do with Sixth and Ninth Commandment sins. So when someone calls you fundamentalist Catholic, it doesn't mean you are a backwater Baptist. What it means is you have avoided Satan's very first temptation in the garden, namely, did God really say? Remember when Satan says that in Genesis, did God really say? That hearkens to the entire doubt we have nowadays of the inerrancy of Scripture. So yes, I, and probably most of you, you really do believe that every sentence that God said in the Bible is first literal and historical, and then only secondarily typographical or analogical or, or anagogical. So yeah, it's, it's great if you're able to do complex metaphorical interpretations of the Bible, because these are beautiful, and in some sense they're nearly infinite. The amount of permutations we can pull from, say, typology between people in the Old Testament and New Testament quite nearly infinite, infinite permutations as long as we stay with the orthodox understanding of the Bible. But the baseline for launching into any and all advanced interpretations of the Bible is always the literal and historical way of interpretation. So I think this podcast is really important for those of you who are following my BLX so you know this is the Word of God. You're not just meditating on things that didn't happen historically. You're not just doing emotional exercises when you try to, you know, picture yourself as Peter falling into the ocean, reaching out your hand to Jesus. This isn't just worshiping your emotions on that. We know Jesus literally reached out his hand to Peter and they both walked on the water. You have to know this to actually succeed in my VLX series. 
But I hope a lot of you who aren't doing the VLX series are listening to this podcast too, because most Catholics have been misled on this. So let me just close by repeating those three quotes from Pope's infallibly writing encyclicals within the past 150 years so that you know this isn't just me. We're just going to re-quote those three popes. So first, Pope Benedict XV in 1920 wrote Spiritus Paraclutus, and it says, quote, St. Jerome then goes on to say that all interpretation rests on the literal sense and that we are not to think that there is no literal sense merely because a thing is said metaphorically, for the history itself is often presented in metaphorical dress and described figuratively. Then we have Humani Generis by Pope Pius XII. He wrote that in 1950. Paragraph 37 says, When, however, there is a question of another conjectural opinion, namely polygenism, the children of the church by no means enjoy such liberty. For the faithful cannot embrace that opinion which maintains that either after Adam there existed on this earth true men who did not take their origin through natural generation from him as from the first parent of all, or that Adam represents a certain number of first parents. Now it is in no way apparent how such an opinion can be reconciled with that which the sources of revealed truth and the documents of the teaching authority of the church propose with regard to original sin, which proceeds from a sin actually committed by an individual Adam, and which, through generation, is passed on to all and is in everyone as his own. And finally, this quote that stopped me in my tracks about 25 years ago and changed pretty much the whole trajectory of my life in understanding divine revelation comes from Pope Leo XIII in Providentissimus Deus. For all the books which the Church receives as sacred and canonical are written wholly and entirely with all their parts at the dictation of the Holy Spirit. It's Providentissimus Deus, number 20. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.